at our data and found that 70% of our traffic, more than 70% of our traffic, comes from old content. Content that is published not today, not this week, but a month, two months, a year, seven years ago. 92% of our leads in a given month come from old content. Only 8% come from content that was published that month. And in fact, if you dig deeper, 46% of our leads are coming from just 30 posts published throughout our entire history. Hi, and welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaStock. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and on this bonus episode of the show, I bring you the keynote Megan Keeney-Anderson, VP of Marketing at HubSpot, gave at last year's SaaStock on tour in New York. Megan goes into great detail on the year-long traffic plateau HubSpot blog went through in 2017, and how after the initial heart palpitations, the team upended their editorial strategy and are stronger than ever today. The creative writing major, Megan, joined HubSpot in 2011, when the growth graph of HubSpot looked like any content marketer's dream. It was a hockey stick. That lasted a few years until in 2017, it hit a plateau. In the first few months, Megan and the team ascribed it to seasonality, but as months went by with no changes, they began to worry. As they would fa- find out, many other companies were reporting similar results and they named that year the great flattening of 2017. The journey to get out of the plateau began. Listen on to hear why were all companies seeing the plateau at the time, Uh, There is this great programmer slash writer named Andre um, Stoltz, who very hyperbolically, but um, interestingly, started to declare that right around 2014, the internet started, the open web that we know started to die. And what started to replace it was a filtered web, a tri-web, he called it, of um, Google, Facebook, and others, which a lot of the others in there, by the way, are massive platforms like Amazon, all being the filter through which we consume content. What was the first thing HubSpot did to accommodate to this new reality? We cut our content strategy in two, because interestingly enough, content that works for search does not work for Facebook. Google is for active searchers, people who know what they want. The content you design to attract those people are very, very different, as are the results. Facebook and all the owned properties are designed for passive users. It is a platform of discovery, not of search. And the rules are very different. So you need one strategy for discovery and one strategy for search. How did HubSpot optimize content to fit Google's new algorithms? First thing we did was eliminate free radicals. What a free radical is on your website is a piece of content that just doesn't connect to anything else. What's changed over the last few years is that structure has started to matter more than long tail keywords, more than keywords in general, the way you structure your content on the site. We spent a year restructuring our entire site, our blog, everything around this idea of a pillar and cluster model. We create a single canonical page on the internet about a topic. To fully enjoy this podcast, we're putting a link to Megan's deck, which you can follow as you're listening. From June the 4th to the 6th this year, we'll be back in New York to run a bigger and better SaaS.East Coast conference featuring incredibly successful SaaS founders and executives such as Megan, as well as key investors from the region. Head over to events.sas.com forward slash East Coast 19 to find out more and buy tickets. Now on with the show.
Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so I am about to talk to you about a time when I was just incredibly mediocre. So it's a good thing the happy hour is after this. How we broke through a year-long plateau that we hit in our traffic. Alternate title, how to be cool, panic, and then find your cool again. So I joined HubSpot in 2011. Um, actually, Dave Cancel mentioned I was at Performable before that with him. And uh, in 2011, things were looking pretty good from a content marketing standpoint. We were not just up and to the right, we began to become hockey stick direction in terms of the amount of views that we got on our content. And so I was feeling pretty good. And then something happened. The thing that every marketer worries about, the great flattening of 2017. And you know, you try to justify it. You uh, call it seasonality. Anybody ever throw around the phrase seasonality before? Uh, you think it's always just a phase, it's gonna pass. And then it just keeps going. Month after month. And you realize we are in a plateau. No worse place to be. This was my state of being in the middle of 2017. And so you start wondering, well, is that it? Have I hit my ceiling? We, we're a pretty massive publication. Is there just no more, are there no more readers out there for us? And we've tapped out. Those are dangerous thoughts to have. And then something kind of magical happened. In the middle of my despair, Moz uh, published their traffic, organic traffic, uh, for that year. And then Buffer, in their ever-transparent ways, which I love about Buffer, published this co confessionary article, we've lost nearly half of our social referral traffic in the last 12 months. And then WordPress published data on all of the blogs that they have on their entire platform. And every single time, I saw a very similar curve, the great flattening of 2017. And a fascinating thing happens when you start to see other numbers just like your own. You realize it's not me. That's amazing, it's not me. And you get this sort of joyous schadenfreude of, okay, I'm not alone in this. And then all that panic turns into fascination. And you realize, God, something is happening here. There is something wrong with the internet. Turns out a couple things were happening and colliding around 2017. Because my team, you know, we, we, we got really interested. We decided at that point, we're going to be Sherlock Holmes. We're going to figure it out. And the couple things that were happening, this is leading up to 2017, um, you start to see the trend that was at the underbelly of, of a lot of our reality in that year. A referral source uh, to, of traffic to top web publishers. And what you're seeing here is Google and Facebook are taking over a lot more of the activity, all of internet activity. Uh, there is this great programmer slash writer named Andre um, uh, Stoltz who 
very hyperbolically, but um, interestingly, started to declare that right around 2014, the internet started, the open web that we know started to die. And what started to replace it was a filtered web, a tri-web, he called it, of um, Google, Facebook, and others, which a lot of the others in there, by the way, are massive platforms like Amazon, all being the filter through which we consume content. And now, this isn't a horrible thing. This isn't bad. It's just a different thing. In fact, there's plenty of opportunity here. Facebook, there are more people in a month active on Facebook today than there were on the planet the year I was born, which was 1980, in case any of you guys are doing the math. So the opportunity is there, but it's different. So Google and Facebook now have direct influence over 70% of internet traffic. And that's not, as I said, not a problem, but what is worth looking at is their priorities over the last couple of years and the way they function has really changed. And it's the way that they have changed that has led to that flattening, or that did lead to that flattening. Let me tell you a little bit about what I mean. The first thing that we did when we realized that um, Google and Facebook were each powerful entities on their own in driving traffic or driving content consumption is we cut our content strategy in two. Because interestingly enough, Content that works for search does not work for Facebook. Google is for active searchers, people who know what they want. The content you design to attract those people are very, very different, as are the results. Facebook and all the owned properties are designed for passive users. It is a platform of discovery, not of search. And the rules are very different. So you need one strategy for discovery and one strategy for search. Now, both of these strategies have to change because both of the, these platforms, the algorithms, have changed over the last few years. Let's go back to Buffer for a moment. Buffer is a social media application. It knows social. So the fact that their social referral traffic cut in half in a, in a year is not about them not being good at social. It's about a fundamental shift on how content gets discovered and, the, and people interact, interact with content on social. So um, over the last couple of years, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, every social network you can think of has shifted their algorithm, shifted their user interface to keep eyeballs on site. Social used to be seen as a pass-through channel. You write a blog post, you promote it out there, you get that click-through traffic back to your site. Today, it no longer is. And anyone operating like that, as we were in 2017, is wasting their time. There's an entire different strategy for off-site content. Google has also changed. It's moved its ads from the sidebar to the main column. It's introduced snippets, so uh, nearly one in three search queries come back with a rich answer box. And it has pushed more and more of the organic results down beneath the fold. So I'm going to focus the rest of this talk on search-driven content, because we just don't have enough time. Um, but I'm happy at happy hour to talk about our strategies for social as well. But there is enough going on in the search world to dedicate all this time to. So in a world where Google is keeping more of the eyes and pushing more of the organic results down, 
how do you stay relevant? How do you, how do you attract those eyeballs? First thing we did was eliminate free radicals. What a free radical is on your website is a piece of content that just doesn't connect to anything else. So this is how we used to structure our content strategy. We would chase the long tail. We went after every single search term you could. If there was a smidge of a different blog post we could write on a topic, we would write it. Our answer to everything was put a blog post on it. So we were publishing five posts a day. It was a total volume game for a while. And again, they sort of all got clumped into this big basket that was our, our collection of blogs. What's changed over the last few years is that structure has started to matter more than long tail keywords, more than keywords in general, the way you structure your content on the site. So this is how we structure our content today. We spent a year restructuring our entire site, our blog, everything, around this idea of a pillar and cluster model. We create a single canonical page on the internet about a topic. And then we cluster all of our supporting content around that page. The broad topics we identify, we're looking for something that has a monthly search volume of about uh, 15,000 or above on topics that matter to our company. And then we find all of the existing blog posts, all new blog posts, and we cluster them, physically cluster them around that page by using internal linking. Clean out every kind of internal link that we have except for the ones that drive to that, to that primary pillar page. We also spent a lot of time consolidating our content. We had seven years worth of content. We had 15 posts about how managers can encourage social selling on their teams. No one needs 15 posts on that. So we redirected some. We, cho we chose the cream of the crop, the best posts to keep alive, and we reinvested in those, that high-quality content. We cleaned out the rest. And then we updated and optimized a lot of our content across the board. It was literally a spring cleaning of 10 years of just cruft that has built up in our content engine. Here's an example of the broad topic. So we have a sales uh, blog. So a broad topic would be, for example, sales qualification. People searching all sorts of things on that. But instead of chasing every single long tail keyword, we made one master page on that. And then we clustered some of our posts around that page. Now, you may be sitting there saying, that seems like kind of a lot of work. You're repackaging your cleaning house, you're rearranging, you're deleting internal links and relinking back. It just seems like a ton. And the answer to that, guys, is yeah. It took a ton of work. But I have good news for you on two fronts. One, it worked like you wouldn't imagine. Uh, Four months after we restructured our website, reclustered the content, got rid of all the bad content, we saw a lift of 50% in organic traffic alone, just four months out. And we've continued to see that rise. The other piece of good news is no one in this room is going to have as much work as we had to do this. We started doing this after 10 years of publishing. Most of you guys are, are just starting out with your content strategy. It, you can start from the beginning, from day one with this cluster model and fit better into the way that Google works today. So, worth it. Clean house, kill the free radicals, redirect, restructure your content, because structure matters in today's search.
The second major change that we went after on the search side is to capture the snippet. For the last few years, we started playing this game of how do we get into as many snippets as possible. Uh, here's why. Before Google introduced the snippets, you could pretty much expect that your very first organic search result, it would probably get about, um, say, 30% of the clicks. Um, and then your next result would get maybe 18% of the clicks, and then so on and so forth down the, down the trail. Once Google introduced snippets, that number pretty much halved. So actually more than halved, because about 50% of the clicks on a search query that has a snippet go to that snippet. And then everything else is just competing for scraps. And by the way, if you're ranking you know, fifth or sixth on a Google um, search engine result page, and you can manage to get into a snippet, that means you've just leapfrogged every other competitor in the space. So snippets matter in today's content strategy. I'll give you some hard evidence of that fact. These are screenshots from our internal wiki. Um, so these are actual posts that we're ranking number one. 15 hidden Instagram hacks and features. In 2016, 76,000 views a month. In 2017, 57,000. And it is because this snippet came in. Best interview questions went from 49,000 to 32,000. This is where my heart palpitations came from. The snippets were eating our traffic. And you don't notice it because it happens in little bites here and there across your entire content strategy. It eats away at your traffic, and that's where the plateau comes from. So we ran some experiments. We started going after the snippets. We wanted to see, first of all, like, do people even click through on snippets, or do they just get the answer and then leave? Uh, and what we found was that this is also a screenshot from internal. I'm giving you guys straight, straight behind the curtain stuff, so um, excuse the formatting. But by moving into just 10% just of the, key, the featured snippets we were going after, we were able to increase our monthly organic traffic by 13,000 visits. Just for 10%. And the bottom line here is the click-through rate to our website for high-volume keywords on those posts increased by more than 114%, even when we previously ranked number one for that term. You guys with me on that? So this is meaningful difference. Breaking that down, you know, let's say we rank number one, but don't appear in the featured snippet on page one of a keyword that's searched for 10,000 times, which is pretty common for, for our audience. Before, we could expect around 1,700 visits, but if we got into the snippet, we found 3,700. So it's not an insignificant amount of traffic. So how do you actually capture the snippet? Uh, it's, it's tricky because they move around. You can't just capture it. It really is a game. You can't just capture it and then own it for the rest of time. What, what actually leads into the snippet, uh, it depends on a lot. So here's how we did it. Structure on your website matters to get into the snippet. Format matters a lot. So the very simple answer, if you just want to try this out, the most straightforward way to do this is to go after the definition snippets and the how-to snippets. The way you get into a definition snippet, very, write a very short 
explainer paragraph at the top of a post and give it an obvious headline like what is X and make sure it is at the top of your post. For how to, very similar thing. Include at least three H2 tags um, and then label your sub steps beneath that. And you'll start to find that you will get into some snippets. Not all, but some. The slightly more complicated answer to it delves into your actual formatting at an HTML level. So um, we went through on our most important post and we cleaned up our HTML because it's amazing what some formatting can do. A couple of spans in here, a couple of misordered headers, and it messes up your entire chance at ranking well. So we made sure we had really pristine code, H1 followed by an H2 followed by an H3. Uh, We've done some experimentation, which uh, told us that Google, at least for now, seems to like LI for their uh, bullets rather than um, UL or any other format. Uh, it's a little early on that, but we basically, bottom line, did some good hygiene on our HTML, and that helped a lot, too. So if you're worried you're not going to remember any of this, uh, don't worry about it. We actually put together like a field guide that includes all of our experimentation and some code that you can copy and paste for, or your marketing teams can copy and paste for their own blogs uh, to make sure that um, you get this. So don't feel like you need to write it all down. I'll have links for that at the end. But yes, we played capture the snippet. It made a huge difference. All right, the final major thing that we did was we learned when enough was enough. HubSpot, um, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with us, but we are big on content. Uh, I love content. I was, no joke, a creative writing major in undergrad. Um, my parents are so relieved that I have a job right now. Uh, so I love words, and again, anything that, any problem we had, any situation we had, our solution was always put a blog on it. But here's the thing, and this is actually something we discovered uh, quite a few years ago and has, is still paying dividends today. We looked at our data and found that 70% of our traffic, more than 70% of our traffic, comes from old content. Content that is published not today, not this week, but a month, two months, a year, seven years ago. Old content drives most of our traffic. So existing content matters, and it matters much more than people typically structure their teams for or typically give credit to. These are a little bit small. I'm going to read them to you. Um, so over here, 92% of our leads in a given month come from old content. Only 8% come from content that was published that month. 76% of views, as I said, come from old content. And in fact, if you dig deeper, 46% of our leads are coming from just 30 posts published throughout our entire history. So you look at those numbers, and you have to ask yourself, as the person in charge of the content strategy, why the fuck are 100% of our content creators focused on new stuff? I had six bloggers, every single one of them, their job, was to create new content. But they're only contributing, that new content is only contributing to 24% of our views in a given month. So, we restructured our team a little bit. 
we focused a portion of our team not on writing new content, but on optimizing old content. Going back, finding uh, well-ranking posts, or well-converting posts, and, op and updating the HTML, and updating the stats, modernizing them, putting in snippet boxes, making sure that they fit with today's SEO rules. And then we found co uh, content that was getting a lot of traffic, but not converting well, and we made sure that the conversion paths were really, really clean and that the offer matched the content and so on and so forth. Pretty simple, straightforward optimization. By doing that on our top performing content, we saw major lift in the uh, traffic that we got. We saw on this one post a 240% lift in the amount of conversions that we got. And again, if you do this across all your content, that compounds. So bottom line, at the, at the end of the year of optimizing all of this older content, we more than doubled the number of monthly leads we generated from old posts that we'd optimized. And we increased the number of monthly organic search views um, by an average of 106%. And that stuff adds up over time because content, the magical thing about it is it compounds. So we started to be able to get more views with less content. We went from publishing five posts a day to a post a day, uh, maybe two posts a day. And we focused on what was really driving the views and the leads for us, uh, which is our top performing content. So where are we now? Well, we've managed to turn our plateau into a bit of a hammock. This is the worst Photoshop job on the planet, but I had to bring the monkey back in. Uh, also not to scale, but you get the idea. Over the last three months, every single month, we've broken our prior month's record. Uh, we just passed a major milestone um, with, the, with our blog, and we are writing less and getting more out of it. So the team is less stretched, they're doing a better job with the content, and we're just growing better as a result. So the bottom line here, the, the real takeaway is not to rest on your laurels. We built our name on content as a company uh, in the early stages, and we had to be careful not to just keep playing and repeating the same old playbook because search changes, social changes, behavior changes. And if you're not watching that, that, those changes closely enough, It'll catch up on you. So for those of you who maybe aren't marketers in the room, but you want to gear your marketers towards these kind of changes, uh, these are a couple of the guidebooks. No form, nothing, just go and get them. Uh, the one about clusters and uh, killer pages, that's at bit.ly slash HubSpot-structure. Snippets, HubSpot snippet. Uh, and then I know a lot of people in the room are from startups or, you know, just getting started yourself. We've got a, a program for startups at HubSpot. You can check that out as well. Any questions that we don't get to in the remaining um, five or six minutes, I'll certainly be happy to take on Twitter or at the happy hour later on. Okay. Uh, all right, great. So first question. Theory out there now that you should do less content, lower volume. Is there a disadvantage of going high volume using the, using the cluster model, assuming good quality? Uh, it's, you know, if you can do high volume and keep quality good and cluster, 
you should do that and you should you know, get yourself a long extended vacation in, in January because it's, it's hard to do all those three things. A lot of times people say, you know, you can have two out of these three things. You have to pick. Uh, but if you feel like you can keep that going, there's nothing wrong with volume. It's more that you, ha- you want to make sure that you're not burning out your team, that you're not burning out your audience as well. And so if the content and the quality stays high, by all means do it, but that's got to be an a underlying factor. What is the most creative thing I've ever written? Uh, professionally or personally? Um, it, you know, I will say professionally, we've started to experiment a lot more um, on and off the site. So we launched uh, a medium publication. Uh, we've been doing more with like turning podcasts into written interviews and mixing, um, mixing formulas and formats a bit. Uh, and so over the last couple of years, I've gotten a chance to flex that a little bit more. Uh, so I would say as, as content strategy has changed, so has our approach. Uh, do you need to maintain clusters with more content, or can I do a cluster per month? Uh, it's less about the timing of clusters and more about just being very intentional about the content you're taking on. So free radical content, content that doesn't fit into any sort of a topic that you're already doing, it's not just that it's a waste of time, it's that it actually hurts your SEO. And that's something we've had to explain to people because a lot of people look at HubSpot's blog and say, uh, you know, millions of visitors a month, and we want to guest post on your blog. And we say, that's great, but it's got to be on one of these topics. We can't rewrite something we've already written about. You can't write something completely asinine or, or ancillary to our core focus areas because we've got to fit it into this structure we've built. So um, I would say, it's again, it's not about volume or timing. It's really about knowing what you're building and being able to point to a cluster and figure out where it fits in. What do I think will be the next big structural shift? I think... So this is on the social side of things, but something like 86% of the time we spend online right now is spent on mobile devices. And the lion's share of that time is spent not surfing the open web, but in apps. And about five of those apps, four out of the five of those apps, let's say, are owned by Facebook in some way, shape, or form. Uh, And as I said, social channels are keeping more of the traffic native on site. It's like the Hotel California. You, you can check out, but you can never leave. And so I think what's going to happen next is that technology is going to catch up, and we're going to get more analytics around that stuff. But even more interesting than that, we're going to be able to convert more of that traffic without ever leaving the social channels. We're starting to now with like Facebook Messenger. We're running a lot of conversion experiments there uh, and seeing good results. So I think as time goes on, we'll start to be able to do more off-site um, that drives the business in a more meaningful way. Uh, okay. What else we got here? Does HubSpot separate the growth team and the marketing team? Uh, so we have, a, we have two growth teams. We have a growth team that is part of the product organization, and their job is to physically build the... The, the loops, the functionality within the product 
that um, we, we could use for our freemium funnel. And then we have a growth team on the marketing side that works very closely with them to figure out the strategy for those decisions. And so uh, we sort of, they, they basically are a bridge organization uh, between the two divisions. Okay, final question I think is, should guest posting be part of a cluster support? Uh, again, I think guest posting is, um, if you have good quality writing, can be a really nice way to, um, to infuse some new voices into your content, to uh, take some of the weight off of your team. But I would just be really intentional about what the topics are that they pursue and how they structure that content uh, so you don't have a bunch of willy-nilly content that's cluttering up your site and cluttering up your reading experience. Okay, that's it. Thank you all for hanging in there. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and you've picked up some valuable lessons from Megan and HubSpot's editorial strategy upending. We're having something of a HubSpot tribute this week as I will be back on Thursday for our regular episode talking with Kieran Flanagan, another VP of marketing at HubSpot, about product-led growth and best practices on acquiring product-qualified leads. Subscribe to make sure you do not miss it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.